So over the past few weeks, we've been doing an amazing study on faith, grace, and works. Uh, We've gone through Isaiah 58 about what uh, authentic Christianity is all about. We looked at James. We've looked at some of Paul's writings. And uh, so today, I'm sort of going to wrap it up. And then next week, we're going to shift because no matter what we do, we'll see next week that without the power of the Holy Spirit, it all means nothing. So we're going to look at Haggai and Zechariah, and the key scripture there will be, so please pray into it, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So we're going to be looking into that and and folding this thing up. Um, And uh, one of the things we realized in the study is that the absolute necessity of all three, faith, grace, and works, in order to be effective in the kingdom. We saw this in James 2. Uh, 14 to 18, where he says this, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm, and keep well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, if Faith, uh, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, and others will say, I have deeds. I say, show me your faith uh, without deeds, and I will show you my faith uh, by, by, by my deeds. I preached extensively on that. It's one of those passages that you need to understand. Uh, there's been a lot of... Um, a lot of discussion and many different views on that, but be good for you to know what we uh, believe in, uh, especially on that passage of Scripture. So today, I've got some good news and bad news. But I want to start for, first of all, just ask this question, how many of you play golf? Can you all stand up, please? I see that hand. Okay, so I've got some... Good news for you. Thank you. You can sit down. I've got some good news for you. Uh, I have it on good authority that there are golf courses in heaven. Bad news is you all have a tea of time tomorrow morning. (laughs) So we looked at Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to start there today with... um, uh, with um, so a bit of bad news, as Paul speaks through this. He tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that our sin killed our relationship with God, that we were dead in our transgressions and sins, disobedient, following all kinds of evil desires and passions, but, and by nature, objects of the wrath of God. We were in a hopeless situation, a lost people without hope, This is before Jesus Christ. We heard that amazing testimony of a person that's been set free by the power of Jesus Christ. And all of this was was driven by Satan's sole ambition, as Jesus told us in John 10, 10, to rob from us, to kill us, and to destroy us. He is not our friend. He wanted to kill, he wants to kill God's prized creation He wants to separate us from God, and he wants to create a world without God. That was his plan, but that was thwarted by Jesus Christ. 
He thought when he got Adam, he got mankind. But God had a plan before the foundation of the world that he predestined us to be born again, saved by the Spirit of God. And we see that in Ephesians 2.47. We're going to talk a little bit about salvation and then just broaden that a little bit. But in Ephesians 2.4-7, after telling us that bad news, Paul says this, But because of God's great love for us, we who, uh, who is rich in, because of God's love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order, this is the amazing thing, that in the coming ages he may show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You see, God knows no longer angry with us. The Bible tells us his wrath was satisfied in Jesus Christ. Not only God is a loving God, he's a kind God. And he has an incredible future for us, and we're going to look at that. We rightly, when we think of salvation, we rightly think of God's unconditional love, mercy, and kindness towards us. Many of us know John 3.16, and if you don't, I encourage you to go and read it, where we see a father who loved us so much that it caused him to do the unthinkable, to send his only begotten son to die on the cross and pay the price for our sins. And as amazing as that is, it's just the entry point. It's not the destination. Many of us live with that revelation, we're saved. And we make that the destination. Well, now I'm saved. I'm just going to hang out and wait my life out, and one day I'll go to heaven. I want to tell you, salvation encompasses so much more than that. Without grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we cannot be saved. We've said it back. We are not saved by works, but works are an action through which we create an, act, an atmosphere where others around us whose hearts have been hardened to the gospel or to the church are softened so that when we sow seed of the gospel into their lives, as, as Christy did there with those little ones, the seed takes root in good soil. That's what good deeds do. They enable others to have what we have through the power of the Spirit of God. We are in a divine partnership with God. I don't know why. If I, uh, if I was God, and I'm not being blasphemous by saying that, I would have kept Jesus here for way longer in ministry than three years. That would have made so much sense to me, but I'm not God, and His ways are not my ways. But He had a plan. It was through the church, Ephesians um, um, 2, 9 and 10 says, that the manifold wisdom of God was revealed to mankind. It's through us, the body of Christ, that God wants to reveal Himself, His love, mercy, and grace. And many people do not have an issue with Jesus Christ if you really get to it. They might not understand who He is, but many have an issue with the church. And we've got to turn that around. And we don't turn it around by judging people. We turn it around by serving and loving people. Amen? Amen. Amen. You see, it's the entry point. 
Because Jesus, not only did Jesus die for our sin to save us from going to hell, which actually would have been enough, but he also paid the price for our sins so that we could inherit everything that he has. This is going to blow your mind. I've been meditating on this, and it just gets bigger and bigger. I've asked Paul to, to uh, read uh, a passage soon from Romans 8 to put it in context, and I'm learning to ask other guys to learn to use long passages so that I don't stop every verse and start another sermon, but to put it in context. And so when I'll get to you, I'll tell you, sir. Paul's keen. And um, you see, he paid the price for our sin so that we could inherit everything that he has. His father would become our father. His righteousness would become our righteousness. His love for his son would become God's love for us. Adopted into his family as heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. An eternal home, his eternal home, became our eternal home. And as Bart Willard, Willard from Mercy Me wrote that amazing song, we can only imagine what it's going to be like. We can only imagine. It's way greater than this. And to put this in context, I'm going to ask Paul to read that passage uh, it's uh, Romans 8, uh, from 1 to 18. He's given me a microphone. Yeah. All right, Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to sinful nature, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what the nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have no obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. 
because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. What an amazing passage. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. 16 and 17, Paul read this. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Indeed, we share in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. When do we share in his suffering? Here, we're in a broken world. Things happen. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. The thing that we have that people out there don't have is we have hope. We have Jesus Christ that says in Isaiah 43, when you walk through the fires, you will not get burnt. I'm not going to put the fires out. When we go through the floods, you will not drown. I'm not going to take those things away, but I am with you, and I have overcome the world, and in me you can overcome. And so this gospel that does away with, 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 with um, hardship is not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. If it was, what are the apostles doing in the Bible. They suffered for Christ. But Paul said this, in the context of eternity, in, uh, in Corinthians 5 or 6, these light and momentary afflictions that I'm going through are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. This man who was shipwrecked, beaten, stoned, flogged, chased from city to city sometimes, and eventually martyred for his faith, said all of that in the context of what Jesus has done for me. He, as he had this revelation himself, that, and he wrote it, that in the context of being an heir of God and a co-heir with Christ, in the context of my eternal destiny, this all stuff is nothing. The things of the world are going to become strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. And Winston Churchill said this to his troops when they're going into Europe. When you're going, when you're going through hell, keep on going. Don't stop. And the same thing for us. When we're going through trials, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Still walk it through. Walk it through. Because no matter what happens... We who are born again win. We win. That's the amazing thing that we have that no other religion can offer or person outside of Jesus Christ. See, John, in the Gospel of John, so we've spoken what Paul talks about in inheritance. We'll look at what John and then Peter says. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12 to 13, speaking of Jesus, it says this, Yet to all who receive him, 
to those who believe in his name, he gave the right, the legal right, because of what he did, to be children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor human decision or husband's will, but children born of God. And he has the amazing thing. As children of God and as co-heirs of Christ, we receive exactly the same eternal inheritance as Jesus. We don't receive it here, but we will when we go to be with him. This will blow your mind if you get this and change your life. It's changed mine. I've understood it, but to read it again. And what was given to God the Son by God the Father has now been given to us. And we see in Hebrews 1, verse 1 to 2, that Jesus was given everything. And what was given to him through Jesus is now given to us. It's not taken away from Jesus. We've just become co-heirs with him. And this is what the writer of Hebrews says. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Now listen. Whom he appointed heir over all things, and who through whom he made the universe. Everything that God made. God the Son, through God used, through God the Son, is for us. Everything, everything, the whole universe. I don't understand this. I can only imagine. (laughs) And we see Peter tells us when that is. Because there has been a false theology that we have it all now. We have it all here now. We've got to walk this walk. And, And because it's a fallen world, stuff happens. But we don't walk alone. And this is not our destiny We have a birth date and a death date. And in between, if we have a tombstone, there's a little dash. And in the context of eternity, that dash isn't even little enough. That's our life. And I heard a speaker one day say, what are we doing with our dash? What are we? Whether we live... 10 years, 20 years, 100 years. What are we doing with that dash in the context of eternity? Amazing challenge he gave us at the prayer breakfast, one of these, um, you know, maybe last year. And this, 1 Peter 1, 3 to 4 explains that. Praise be the God of our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who in his great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And also, so Paul spoke of the inheritance, John spoke of the inheritance, and Peter spoke of this inheritance. These were guys that wrote Scripture under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And he says this, And also, who in his mercy has given us new birth into a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and also an inheritance 
that can never perish, spoil, or fade, an inheritance that is stored in heaven or kept in heaven for you. You have an inheritance in Christ. We might see some of it in here and in our lives. There is love, mercy, and grace. But we have an eternal inheritance that has been kept for us in Christ Jesus. And we need to fix our eyes on things above. We need to focus on Jesus because this is how the enemy tries to become God of our lives. He shrinks Jesus. He makes our problems bigger than Jesus. And in the sun outside there, if I had a penny or one cent, whatever you want to call it, and I close my one eye and put it closer to my other eye, I could block out the whole sun. But when I move it away, and when that, yes, it's a trial, yes, it's a tribulation, I'm not doing it again, but I am going to determine that it's not going to define me or my work, work with God. I'm going to work through it, regardless of what happens. You see, we went from spiritual orphans to children of God adopted into his family and given the same inheritance as Jesus Christ. Not on the basis of anything that we have done or any worth in us, but based on the worthiness of Jesus Christ. And church, that's why we love, serve, and obey him. That's why we do it. It's not a stick. It's not, it's not forced. We have a free will. But we do it because out of love and gratitude for what he's done. When we fall in love with Jesus, like when you fall in love with somebody, has, as somebody just showed us today, it does happen. When that happens, you want to please that person. You want to do things with them. You want to spend time with them. And that's why Jesus did not want a relationship of rules and regulations. He wanted a relationship of love. First love relationship. From heaven, in a vision, he speaks to John on the Isle of Patmos. And he says a few things to some churches. In the first one, the church of Ephesus, he says, you've done all of this stuff right. You're theologically correct. Go and listen to it. You know your theology, but you're dry, dead, and cynical because you have forsaken your first love. Repent and do the things you did at first. To the church of Laodicea, you're rich, you have all this stuff, but I wish you were either hot or cold. Go big for me or not. Jesus said, as his word, he's speaking from heaven in a vision. The resurrection Christ, that when John saw in Revelation 1, the John, when, when he was in the upper room, he had his head on Jesus' lap. In his own writing, he calls, he says, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and that was John, Jesus' best friend on this earth out of the three that were closest to him, John. He sees the resurrected Christ in a revelation, 
And it wasn't gentle Jesus, meek and mild. It, he sees him with eyes like blazing fire and all of this, and he fell, falls on his face as though dead. And Jesus picks him up and says, John, I want you to write this book for me. And he gives us, him this revelation. And he just says, you know, to me, go big or go home for us, for me. He wants us to be passionate about him and passionate what we do. Because when we're passionate about something, the privilege outweighs the price. Joseph, uh, David Livingston, who discovered the Nile, it was a big thing because it's two, 3,000 kilometers from Egypt. He discovered the source. People had. He discovered. He chopped through stuff and he found it. He went back to, Israel, uh, to, um, to England. It was a huge thing. And the king wanted to meet him and I don't know, knight him and all of this. And he said, why... Is it such a privilege to serve an earthly king and such a sacrifice to serve the king of kings? David Livingston. I heard that Tyrant say that a few years ago. And listen, I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching at myself too. I hope this spurs us on to love and good deeds. You see... God's plan of salvation, just as it was, was not an afterthought. He wasn't in heaven, and Satan tricked Adam and Eve, and sin came and said, oh, geez, we better come up with a plan. Ephesians 1 says that before the foundations of the earth, he had a plan, and that plan was Jesus Christ. Go and read Ephesians. It's amazing, especially the first three chapters with regards to our salvation. He had a plan for our salvation. But just as he had a plan for our salvation, good deeds were not an afterthought to God. Good deeds weren't given to me to keep me from being bored. We see this clearly in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, verse 8 and 9 says, For grace, by grace you are saved through faith. It's not of yourself. It is a gift from God. So that's salvation. But the next verse he says, 10, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared for us in advance. When he had a plan for salvation, he had a plan for our life. He had that plan. They were not, they cannot be separated. We're not saved by works, but because we are saved, we do good works. And God planned for us in advance. And you see, the way the Holy Spirit motivates us to serve and obey God is not through guilt and condemnation, but by reminding us of our great salvation, of who we are now as sons and daughters of the living God 
heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And church, that should absolutely fill our hearts with gratitude. Bring back that first love relationship. God cares for us. God loves us, but he cares for others. And through us, he wants to reach them. And God wants a cheerful giver. Giving finances may be one way, but that is such a little thing to give in our lives to him. And he says, not under compulsion. I'm not going to force you. Nothing to do with your salvation. You saved. Not under compulsion, but out of a heart for him. And Jesus turns that around to the church in Ephesus, as I said. This amazing church that all of this was in. One of the most theologically sound churches in the New Testament, planted by Paul. Paul was there for three years, ministering, building this church. When he left there, he, 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 he assigned Timothy to that church, his true son in the faith. And you can see through Paul's letters, and we have two of them. He may have written more. Letters to Timothy. He is encouraging him and showing how to lead this amazing church. After Timothy, John the apostle was there. The Apostle John. And John was exiled to Patmos from Ephesus. From there. He was there. And historians will say that even at that stage, Mary was there too. Because remember, where John went until near the past, Mary went at the cross. He said, John, look after my mother. And I'm sure he did that. So this was an amazing church. Birthed supernaturally with power. That got into works deeds. That argued about theology and stuff. More than talking about Jesus Christ and his grace. And for us as we close this down. And next week we're going to see that. I don't want us to get in the thing that it's about works. I don't want us to get into that because that's what the enemy wants us to do. He wants us to focus on works because works with no meaning is hard. It's hard. Work with no passion is hard. And we go through these dips and up and down, and I've been through them, where ministry is hard, where things are hard, and we do it, and I thank God that we, that we still do it, and through, some, through the hard times. But that shouldn't be the norm. That should be the exception. Because when we get to that place, we dig a well, and we say, Lord, remind me again. As, as, as David said in Psalm 51, Lord, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. And that's what God is doing in this place. I sense it. I sense it. But when we push out of the four walls, the enemy strategy, uh, when I say evangelistically or in our daily lives, we, when church is not an event, but church is a lifestyle, 
when that happens, the enemy might get pretty angry with you. Well, since I decided to step out and shine the light, all, all the wheels are falling off the bus. Why? Because he wants to contain the church, and he does it pretty well within the four walls of a building. That's, we're, if we're saved, and I believe if you truly save, you save. God does not have a cosmic eraser taking your name out of the book of life every time you sin. We're saved. When we're saved, we're saved. He has lost the battle for our souls. So he turns from, from, from salvation to us to containment. And we need to understand that strategy. We need to understand that. And when we start doing stuff in our own strength, in our own works, and it's so easy because we get so busy and so much stuff happens, we fall out of love. We need to just come back and remind ourselves of the joy of our salvation, of the privilege of serving Christ, no matter how hard it gets, church. They are light and momentary afflictions. There's an eternal glory. And yes, they do hurt. And that's why we need each other, because one is strong and other can be weak. And we need to encourage one another. And we're not always going to have it together. And we're not always going to do it right. And we're not always going to want to come to church in that. But together, as we encourage one another, as we love one another, surely we can turn the city and this nation upside down. Amen.